Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. Today we are talking to Kemp Powers, who is the co-writer and co-director of Soul, the new Pixar movie. It's out on Disney Plus on Christmas Day. He's also the writer of One Night in Miami, which is in theaters on Christmas Day. It is streaming on Amazon next month. Thus, we are talking to someone who has two movies coming out on the same day, which is a rarity in any year. Um, it's also a rarity that I get to talk to someone I used to work with back at Forbes magazine. Welcome, <laughs> Ken Powers. <laughs> Thanks for having me, man. Good to see you again. It's been 20-ish years, I yeah, think. Yeah, it's, it's been a minute, man. It's been a minute. Um, so you're having a year. Yeah, having a busy year. It's a, a good busy. I guess I'm making the most of this pandemic lockdown. By the good thing about it is that you know doing the press tours, I don't have to leave my dining table. You know, it's all it's all Zoom oriented. You've got a good setup there. They're taking good care of you. Yeah. Um, I've watched both movies. I really liked them both. Um, oh, I think anyone who is listening to this podcast has access to Disney Plus and Amazon and might even go to a... Th- I doubt they're going to a theater. Yeah, probably uh, not. It's not going to be not. playing in that many theaters, by the way. I think it's just like in the Miami area on Christmas and a couple of days later. It'll gradually roll out to theaters, but it's not going to be a huge release because of the LA, New York, and San Francisco are still shut down. Yeah. So no theaters open here. This is normally the podcast where I'd spend time talking to you about how you feel about having your movie stream instead of coming to theaters. And we could talk about that. But I think there's more interesting things to talk about, like how you broke into Hollywood late into middle age, if if I can be polite about it, because I think we're about the same age. Yeah, no, you're being, that's accurate, man. I mean, look, if there's one thing I can say about my fellow journalists is we are a cynical bunch because trust me, I got a lot of laughter um, particularly in my last couple of newsrooms when I tell people I, I, like that I was working on um, my play on, on nights and weekends. And because of that, um, I felt that it was a conflict of interest for me to cover arts and entertainment. That generated some really big laughs from some of the arts editors. <laughs> I had, so I, I'm kind of in that boat. I mean, so you and I worked together at Forbes. We were just talking uh, previous, before we started recording. Uh, I wrote a story about Jay-Z at one point, and, and you helped me out and, and by going to Las Vegas to watch Jay-Z perform. Yeah, uh, yeah, I remember that well. Which is great. That back in the magazine days where you could fly to Las Vegas to see Jay-Z I know. perform. I, I told people that working there, it was so great. Like, the, the pay was shit. 
but you got your corporate credit card and you could go chasing your story anywhere in the country. You yeah. know what I mean? And, and no one and said no, no. No one said no. No one questioned an expense. So it's like, yeah, you don't make a lot of money, but you could chase a story to the a business story, mind you, to the the furthest corners of the earth, and no one will say no to you. Yeah, in retrospect, maybe that was a problem with the business model, but yeah. we could have a different discussion about that. But so I haven't seen you in a long time, but I have your Facebook friend, so I have that ambient Facebook relationship. So I had a vague idea that you were doing plays. Yes. And I assumed that doing plays was not a, a, a career. So I thought this was kind of a hobby of yours. And periodically you'd say, uh, we're staging such and such play. And I, I think maybe over time, I think I, I saw that you kept saying it was one night in Miami, but I doubt that I probably processed it. Um, but it seemed like you were periodically putting on plays. Yes. And the next thing I know, you've got two movies coming out. Um, one of which is a Pixar movie, uh, and and both of which are highly regarded and very good. So there's a great New York Times piece uh, that sort of goes into sort of how you got from from the beginning to the end. But um, maybe we can do the shorter version of it. At what point did you go from person who had a day job writing about Jay-Z or other things to becoming a playwright and then a screenwriter? Full-time, um, that would have been 20... Of uh, 15 full time. I was still I was still hacking away trying to keep the day job going even after getting my 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 an agent and and even and getting my you know my first my feet wet in Hollywood. Um, so that was in your play in your 40s. Yes. Well, and yeah, I'm I'm 47 now. So um, yeah, I was well past the. It was it was not fun being a staff writer in my first writers room where you're older than the showrunners. So I, I think, but the good thing about that is you quickly learn like, boy, I better level up really quickly because <laughs> I cannot be that old guy. Like I got to learn fast. And then thankfully I'm a fast learner when it comes to the, 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 the bell, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of, of the, this business. But, um, but yeah, it it was fairly recent. It was only about six years ago that I said goodbye to my last full-time journalism job. So normally people you know, there's a lot of people who go to Harvard and they join the national, the Harvard Lampoon and they get an SNL job or whatever it is. And there's a couple sort of basic career arcs and to get you to Hollywood. And they all sort of involve being in your 20s. Mm -hmm. And most people that I'm aware of who are sort of have a artistic ambition or, or anything beyond sort of the quotidian day to day, sort of let that go at some point in their 20s or their 30s. And frankly, if they don't, people kind of feel a little bad for him. Like, oh, that guy's still chasing that thing. Why won't he grow up? Blah, blah, I blah. think people felt bad for me. I think <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people around me probably felt bad for me and felt I was a bit delusional. But um, I, I don't know how to explain it, man. I just I just felt like I was. it was something that I was good at and I felt that these the stories that I was trying to tell um, had had value and that, that people would would dig him if I could just get them out to an audience. Let me let me start by saying that like it's not like 2015 rolled around and I discovered Hollywood. I've been living in Los Angeles since um, 2004, and this is actually my second go of Hollywood. Back then, when I was still at Forbes, actually, I got a night journalism fellowship at University of Michigan, and um, I took a sabbatical year. So I was in Ann Arbor at Michigan, and I think I was supposed to be yeah I was supposed to be studying global economics. But on a whim, I took screenwriting classes instead. I've been writing creatively. I think the first writing I did in college, um, other than the school paper, 
was actually an independent comic series that that I wrote um, with some friends of mine. So it's been a thing that I've been passionate about and doing since I was 18 years old. But when I was at Forbes and I did the Knight Fellowship, um, I took screenwriting classes at Michigan, and that was really what opened my eyes to it. It was actually my professor there who said um, at the end of the class, because that was the one class you couldn't audit. He said, if you take this class, you have to write a screenplay. So he's like, whenever you fellows come in, you audit, you don't do anything, blah, 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 but you're going to you're gonna write a script. You can't just like, take up space in my class. Exactly. And so I was like, sure, I'm happy to write a script. Now, I think I was about 28 years old then. Um, yeah, I was like 28 years old. So... Um, which made me old in that class because it was a it was an undergraduate screenwriting class. So everyone else was like 19 and 20 years old. So the end of the class, I wrote my script and I remember the professor, he was like, you really should consider um, giving this a real shot. He's like, I think you're pretty good. I was like, oh, well, if you think I've got some a chance at it, he's like, well, maybe it's that or maybe it's just the fact that of the entire class, you were the only person who didn't write a romantic comedy about a Jewish guy in love with a Gentile girl. That's what he told me. <laughs> so I guess he got like 14 rom-coms. Write what you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, and then I wrote this like dark drama set in like the inner city. So he was like, maybe it was just because it was something different, whatever it is, just go ahead and, and give it a shot. So at the time I was still in the Forbes Chicago Bureau um, and I actually got transferred to the Santa Monica Bureau. And when I got transferred out there, um, I submitted the script I wrote at Michigan to another fellowship at USC. Um, and I got that fellowship, too. And I wrote another script for that fellowship. That was when I got my first agent. So this would have been like late 2004. And that's actually when I left Forbes. So I left Forbes to ostensibly be a screenwriter in 2004. And it was a nightmare, man. I mean, it was every... Even though I was still technically in my 20s, I was already feeling a little old and I was doing a lot of page one rewrite work on movies that just weren't getting made. And I wasn't they, they, it was like I wasn't in the guild yet. So it was like just enough to get by, but not just on the bubble. Yeah. And also, you know, people make a can make a pretty good living writing films that don't get made. Right. And rewriting those films. Yeah. Yeah. And as but as a journalist, I, I equate it to living off of your kill fees. Imagine if every article you write gets killed and the kill fee is enough to live off of. So it was soul crushing. So after about a year and a half, two years of that, I went to my agent and I said, thanks, but no thanks. I don't want to do this anymore. And left the agency and went back to journalism for a decade. So in this like interesting Hollywood narrative of like, he just kind of stumbled into mm -hmm. two films out. No, no, man. It was a 15 year odyssey, including washing out, burning out, going broke, losing it. Like I, it was a roller coaster ride. And it's only because I flamed out that first time I came to Hollywood that a decade later when my play was up and all of a sudden Hollywood comes knocking again, I was able to say, fool me once. You know what I mean? Like the, the second time around, I, I was like, nah, I don't really want to do this. I don't want to chase after these kinds of projects. These are the types of things that I want to do. And if I can't do that, then no, thank you. you know, I know it, what I want to do. If I can't do that, I don't want to do other work. Yeah. Um, so let's, we'll, we'll talk about soul, but I think more people are, it's just soul is going to be more 
accessible and, and easier, more people are going to see it. And I, I think they should also see One Night in Miami. So let's let's start with that one first, which was the play you're talking about. Mm-hmm. This is a play about. It's a real. It's a real event, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you have Muhammad Ali, who's then Cassius Clay, mm-hmm. Malcolm X, Jim Brown, the NFL star, who's still in the NFL at the time, and Sam Cooke all get together in one one night after after Cassius Clay beats Sonny Liston, and then mm-hmm. you imagine the conversation they're having after. Correct. That. And I got to say, I, mean, I really enjoy it. It's Sam Cooke is someone who I like a lot, but haven't thought about really at all. And Jim Brown's someone I know next to nothing about. Right. So was, this is one of those things where I stopped the movie several times and Wikipedia and like, sure, did that sure. really happen? Um, why did you decide to write about that event? Interestingly enough, <clears throat> when I initially found out that was a real night, those four guys were probably four of the most like iconic men in the world to me. And they were huge stars at the time. I of don't know what the, what the analogy would be today, but yeah, it would be, yeah, it's like, it's weird because today it's not weird to think of like LeBron and Jay-Z and say Kara Walker and R. like, it's not weird to think of them all hanging out with each other because mm-hmm. in this new Instagram time, everyone does hang out. But back then it was, they had very different public personas. Sam Cooke's public persona was very safe to most of America, whereas Malcolm X's was not. So the idea of them hanging out really was really kind of like was an eye opening. Um, and when I first found out that that was a real night and it was uh, reading a, a book by uh, the late sports writer, Mike Marcusi, where it mentions it in one paragraph, I was interested in writing a book about the friendship between those four men, because obviously I was still a journalist um, back then when I when I first read the book. So I set about doing years of research with the intention on writing a book about the friendship between those four men over this period of like three, four years. And it's only because my journalism career was kind of like slowing down enough that I was able to spend more time doing my creative theater writing pursuits that it just dawned on me. I'd written a bunch of short plays I had already washed out on writing screenplays for Hollywood. And I was thinking like, I want to write something like a chamber piece, something that's very theatrical, that's very easy to stage. And I remembered, I was like, oh, that that great night. The reason I didn't write the book was because I couldn't fill in the gaps of things like what they talked about that night. But free so from that. <laughs> yeah. So we, we know that they met. We don't know what happened, so you imagine the conversation. Yeah, we know, we know little factors. Like, they really were eating vanilla ice cream. You know what I mean? Like, if you read about it, the, the, that night gets mentioned in a number of different biographies. And so, so this this play, I presumably haven't seen the play, but the movie is is them basically in one room for most of the two hours. The, the play is them, that's the whole, the play begins with them walking into the room. It's mm-hmm. 85 minutes real time, and it ends when they leave. So the movie is actually quite a bit different than the play in that, you know, you don't even get into the room until like 40 minutes into the movie. But the play just begins when they enter the room. Yes. And again, what, what what is the notion of those four men beyond sort of the historical novelty of it that you think is worth exploring in a play and now in a movie? To me, those four men represent nascent the nascent black power movement. Before people called it black power, um, this idea of black self-determination, black financial and political independence Um, And I say black power as a contrast to, say, the civil rights movement. So uh, I think any one of those four guys, if you ask them about things like um, integration, they might have had somewhat controversial opinions on that in 1964. But again, I think the, the defining thing is, again, black power, black control, black business 
independence, um, which was a very unusual way of thinking at that time. And to me, sort of the, the, the main tension you're exploring there is the idea you've got three people who are celebrities, performers, and one who's a political activist. You've got obviously Malcolm X, and he's pushing the he's pushing the other three to be more politically active. This is still resonant in, in 2020. Um, and they're arguing with him about that. Uh, and the main argument is between Sam Cooke and, yes. and Malcolm X. And Sam Cooke's saying, I'm do, you, you, you're, you're accusing me of being sort of a sellout and, and too accommodating, but I'm actually running my own business. I own my own songs. Mm -hmm. The Rolling Stones are paying me right. uh, for music that I've made. All those themes are, are, are still resident in 2020. Does the context for this movie feel different for you now than when you started writing it 10 years ago? I wish I could say it felt more different, but it doesn't. And that's kind of, um, it's kind of sad, I think, that it doesn't feel more different. Because you have to understand, when, I, when the play first came out in 2013, the Trayvon Martin thing happened, um, it feels like every production of the play, there was some incident that resulted in all the press around it being about how timely it is. Mm -hmm. And of course, this year, it's like how timely the film is. And that was really never, while I always saw the modern parallels, I couldn't help but see the modern parallels, the intention was never to have it just speak to exactly what we're going through today. If anything, it's, it's speaking to a conversation that had been happening way before those four men. And it's still happening today. It's the it's the old debate between W.E.B. Du Bois and um, Booker T. Washington. You know, what's the best way forward for black people in America? Um, you could you could extrapolate that to what's the best way forward for black people in the Western world? Is it better to work within the system? Is it better to burn it all down? You know, and, and that's a that's a discussion that had been happening way before the 1960s. It's a discussion that is still happening now. But most importantly, it's a discussion that's been going that goes on, I think, in the mind of every black artist, black business person. Like when you're a black person in an environment where most of your peers are not black, um, you inevitably will find yourself asking in, in situations where you you question whether it's worth it to do what you're doing. That's the right. best way of putting it. And and. When I say right, like I know, but uh, but you see these conversations again happening almost in real time, uh, frequently on the right uh, when they want to argue that that America is not racist, there's no systemic racism. They'll point to a famous black person and say, "Look, Oprah is successful; she's the richest person in Hollywood, whatever." The, and then, right. uh, and then, but there's other strands of it. Uh, Dave Chappelle does a performance after George Floyd's killing, uh, which isn't isn't comedy; it's him talking. But he says at one point, like, "I'm being asked to say something about George Floyd." And why should I say something about George Floyd? I'm, I'm a performer. There's activists you can listen to. There's other people you can listen to. Um, do you, after wrestling with this, I guess all your life, and then specifically for the last 10 years, do you, do you come down on one side or the other? Or is it still a question for you? It's very situational, man. There are days when I come down on the Sam side and days when I come down on the Malcolm side. It's very situational. If anything, that's my inner monologue that I kind of find myself debating with myself in my own head before I take on a new project or before I um, do do a new thing. And um, and I think that's always going. And I think that's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. Just like I think the central debate argument in One Night in Miami is a healthy debate 
to have. Because keep in mind, it's supposed to end with it still being love between these guys, because it's like this is a debate we need. We need to be able to have a, this, this discussion with one another. I mean, Sam's perspective, which one of the things I love about Sam's perspective in that moment um, in the story is that when Sam makes his case, and I love seeing it with the play, often when the, with the stage play, whenever Sam made his case, the audience would applaud. They would go like, yes, you know, what he's talking about is like business and it's smart and this is the way forward. But then when Malcolm retorts, it's kind of like people's mouths drop open because it seems like Sam's case is airtight. Like he and won. And, and he won. And then Malcolm throws it back in his face and it's like he didn't win. It's not airtight because what people don't realize is the inspiration. Sam's argument is an argument that I believe in, but it is also the same argument that was used. And you pointed it out. It's used on the right to say there's not racism because look at what this person accomplished. The richest black man in America for a number of years was step and fetch it. Okay, so literally in order to become the richest black man in America, all he had to do, Lincoln Perry, was perpetuate such derogatory images of other black Americans that it tainted how not just this country, but the world saw us for 40 years. But hey, he's a black millionaire, a success story. You know, he could. So you see what I'm saying? And in, in, in Malcolm's perspective, what Sam is arguing is no different than step and fetch it. And the thing is that you have to know the history. No, it's you have to have more of a holistic view of it. There's no one just because this is a fact and you have positive intentions, someone else could have negative intentions and using the same formula cause irreparable damage. What's your expectation of the audience going in? I saw the Mal Spike Lee Malcolm X movie when it came out, and that's mm -hmm. the sort of extent of my education about Malcolm X for the most part, and that was in the early 90s. Um, and I know a little bit about Muhammad Ali. And next to nothing about Sam Cooke and next to nothing about Jim Brown. And, and I feel like uh, if I feel like a lot of people are going to know a lot less than me. Um, sure. Do you expect them to be pausing? Because you, And you do some show and tell and you do some explication. But for the most part, it seems like you, well, you tell me. Well, what you think I think the audience my knows. expectation is the same as what was the expect? I, let me ask this. What was the expectation of the audience going into the King's speech? Because I sure as hell didn't know anything about King Henry. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I knew nothing about him, but I was able to watch and appreciate the human drama on a surface level. And if I wanted to, and what I did after I finished watching it was I Googled to learn more about what the hell actually happened. Cause that's not even our country's history. So I guess that's pretty much the similar expectation that you would go in and fall into the human conflict. Um, the, the human story, um, maybe even relate to some of the stuff they're talking about, particularly if you're a black audience member. And if you don't know anything about any of these guys, I'm hoping that the way I've characterized them makes you interested enough that you want to learn more when you're done and might even be bothered to go to at least their Wikipedia page to see how much of this is actually true. Uh, side note, uh, Sam Cooke, who, they're all great, uh, but he's played by Leslie Adam Jr., who is the star of Hamilton. So if, if that piques your interest you can watch for that reason alone also sam cook's just a great musician yeah um, i mean him him singing a change is going to come just gave me chills man really really great performance so great we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor and we'll be right back with kemp powers and we're back so let's talk about soul 
not a project you've been working on forever. It's a Pixar movie. Um, and as we're starting to watch it, I was thinking, has Pixar really dealt with black characters at all? And it turns out that's the reason you're there, right? At least initially. That was why they initially engaged me as a writer um, was because, you know, they were, to their credit, I think they know what they don't know. Um, and they wanted to engage other creatives with a with a view that would you know help them execute the best version of this story. So, so I came on as a writer first. So the folks at Pixar had had started sort of creating this movie. Soul was it called mm -hmm. Soul then? That was the code name for it. Okay, and I think initially the character was white, and then they said, "Oh, it should be black." Um, yeah, I don't know. I never saw any versions of it where the character was white. I, okay. I just saw the reels. Um, and in all the reels that I saw, he was black, but I think maybe in the ideation stage when they were still in treatment form, maybe he was white then, but, but he was, he was black from the, the first reels. So Pixar is the gold standard in Hollywood movie making, right? Not just mm -hmm. animation, but everyone loves their movies. They're commercially successful. They're sophisticated. They're smart. It's kind of shocking that, I mean, the way I, at least the way I read the time story and you tell me if I'm wrong is that they said, we don't have the capacity to tell a story about a black person, presumably because we don't work with those people at Pixar. Am I interpreting that correctly? I mean, I think that's overly simplifying it because look, there, there's, there are not a lot of, there aren't a lot of, there weren't. At least when I what started there, there were not a lot of black people at Pixar. Period. There's not. They're just, you know, I would, I would, if I had to guess, I'd say of their staff, maybe, you know, less than five percent. Does is, that give you black. pause, or that just par for the course? I think that's kind of like par for the course. At, at you know, if you go to any, uh, I wouldn't. I would not be surprised if that number is the same at Disney Animation and DreamWorks and every. I mean, I'm I don't know, but I'm, I would yeah. not be surprised because I've gone to other places and I'm always like, wow, there's just not a lot of black people are around. And maybe I'm making too much of it. Does it worry or 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 does it worry or concern you that you're being brought in to be the black guy in the room? It did. I, that that was an honest conversation I had in the beginning because I said one. I don't want to be the black guy in the room. I, I only speak for me and I happen to be black. But I think that's part of the reason why they formed an internal and external culture trust and brought in so many damn consultants because I didn't want to have to be there simply to carry the black torch and be like, nope, that's racist. That's racist. That's racist. That wasn't my goal. My goal was to help tell a story. And just like you'd be wrong to assume that everything black in soul is me, you'd also be wrong to assume that all I did were the black things. Quite, quite the opposite. You know, understand that at the end of the day, you said if Pixar is a gold standard, gold standard doesn't mean charity. They wouldn't have made my butt co-director <laughs> if I didn't earn the if if my my contributions to the film didn't go far beyond just um, culturally specific things. But again, it was a it was a starting point, and I think. Again, I wasn't there when they made the the film, but I mean, Coco was. The brain, it's, it's, they start with the director, the brainchild of the director. Thankfully, now there's lots of different kinds of directors of different genders and races in the pipeline. But even 10 years ago, it would have been all white guys, you know? So, you know, Coco was Lee Unkrich in, in his idea. But I think they had the good foresight to invite a, invite partners from in, um, and I think they did a similar culture trust. Adrian Molina was made co-director, and I think the end result with a film like Coco was incredibly positive and incredibly good, you know, and and moved things forward. But it's 
yeah, it's it, it's problematic. And and hopefully things are I, I think things are changing um, in a positive way. I saw positive change just in the several years that I was there working on it. Thankfully, the pipeline, you're getting way more animators, story artists of color. Now there's a whole new challenge. And the new challenge is it's hard to get staff of any race because now there's so many people who run animation bandwagon. It's hard mm-hmm. to staff up, period. Like, <laughs> like I'm doing another project in the animation space right now. I can't say what it is, but let me just tell you, it's like, oh my God, everyone, there's so, Netflix is doing animated, everyone's doing animated films. And because of the pandemic, I think people see animation as something that's kind of like pandemic proof. So we can, actually, you can literally make it at home, which is what we do. Yeah, we we were, we finished we finished Soul. Um, we were seven weeks out from completion. We we still had like forty percent of the film that wasn't animated yet. We did finished I catch it at a, home. Did I catch a COVID joke in in there? I wrote down my notes COVID, but I don't actually remember if there was a line. Was there a line or reference to COVID? No, no, no. Was, I just imagined it, it. the okay. film was locked, but the animation wasn't completed. But we okay. that was all done remotely. And, and again, externally, uh, I watched the kid. I watched the screener with my kids this weekend, and I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. We paused it, and my younger son said, oh, "I think this is a Black Lives Matter movie." <laughs> and really? I said, "I said, well, why do you think that?" He goes, "Well, it's, it's a black character and something else." I'm like, you know, the, the character could just be black without being Black Lives Matter, but maybe that's what Black Lives Matter means. And um, you know, we had a good, honest conversation about it, and he eventually conceded later on that it, it wasn't. Um, but I assume that a lot of people either will see that it's called Soul, and there's a black character in the in the it's it's Jamie Fox, and there's a black character in the you know the Chiron or not the Chiron in the thumbnail, and they're going to assume this is a movie about black people, uh, and that will inform their decision to to watch it or not, and it'll also inform sort of what they go into thinking about it. And I'm wondering how you think about that because it's. Not a movie about black people. It's a movie it's not, in which no, one of the characters I, is black. Absolutely. I mean, Joe could have been anything or anyone. I just was my 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 concern and what I wanted was that if Joe was going to be black, that he and that he seemed authentic, you know, that he seemed authentic to his background, to where he was, you know, to and, and that's it. But you could have made this film with a character who was white. You could have made this film with a character who was Asian. But I would just want whatever race that character is that to be represented well, but that's not what the film is actually about. As far as people making that perception, I I don't care because people, anytime they see a black face nowadays, there's a certain segment of our country that assumes everything that's got a black person is a black lives matter or woke statement. So I I really could, could care, care less about that. That's just, we're at a weird, you know, time when look, man, it was, it was very interesting one of my last full-time um, editorial jobs is as a front page, um, senior front page news editor at Yahoo. And I was in news. So, you know, every time you go to yahoo.com, you, you see those news stories pop up. I was the guy who was writing the headline, mm-hmm. putting the stuff up. So there was one of us for news, one of us for entertainment, one of us for um, sports. And there were certain, there were certainties whenever you put items into that front page. If you put up an item, it didn't matter what the story was about. If it had a picture of an interracial couple, man, you could predict in advance to just shut the comments down. You know what I mean? (laughs) You were going to be bombarded with 10,000 awful. And it doesn't matter the context. It doesn't matter. It could be a story 
about going to the moon and if it's a black person and a white person, you know how people. So my point being, a certain segment of our country is going to perceive things the way they perceive things. And I don't and it's not my concern how they perceive it. I'm going to tell the story I want to tell um, in, this, in the way that we want to tell them. And, and I have no control over that. But I yes, I, I could totally see that because that's how people have been for quite a while. So I don't want to spoil the movie. It's called Soul, so you can maybe guess, uh, but it deals with with life and death. Uh, it's heavy. Um, yeah. It's it, and it seems a little. It, there's some sort of. I mean, it, my kids pointed this out too. There's some sort of parallels or th- similar themes with with Inside Out, but it's it's a thinking movie. Um, I'm wondering how you thought about sort of making it accessible to a general audience. A, Pixar audience, a family audience that's going to watch it on Christmas Day, and right. and maybe isn't isn't. I mean, you didn't. You're not in charge of the release date, but it, you know, yeah. someone who's expecting you know something along the lines of Cars Two or Cars Four, sure. or Cars Three. I, look, I, I think there's people who are going to probably love the film, and there's going to be people who it's not what they expected at all, and and that's okay. I mean, one of the things I lo- was most excited about in working with Pete Doctor, uh, the director who hired me was that he was responsible for Inside Out and Up. And those are, you know, those are some heavy Pixar films and they're they're a lot more challenging. And as an as an artist, I I I didn't want to after all after all the time it took me to finally get on my feet and be doing this for a living, I don't want I didn't want to be doing the version of this where I make widgets. You know what I mean? Where I'm just like, oh, he's great at making the cereal that everyone. I want to do things that are creatively different, interesting and challenging. Of course, you want to find a a mass market. You want to find as big a market and audience as you have. But we did test this in front of a surprisingly large amount of audiences. I remember when we did an all a kid screening of an earlier draft of Soul. So it wasn't even half animated. And I was fully expecting none of the kids to get it. And they got it. I mean, like they understood it beyond my expectations because there were like four or five-year-olds who the parent would say, I thought this was a really good movie, but I don't think my child's going to understand it. At which point their kid would cut them off and explain the whole plot in detail. And one of the things I love about Pixar is they don't talk down to children. They talk up and it's like they know kids can get it. So you know? you're saying this is the kind of movie after after your long career and your long struggle to break in that you wanted to do. Is there a scenario where you get a call from Pixar and they say, we want you to come work on this movie? And you say, great. And then it turns out it is a lesser Pixar movie. And you say, no, not for me. That's the that's the career. That's the job. I mean, but I mean, would yeah. you would you would you turn that down, or you you take yeah, it? Yeah, if it wasn't for me, if if look, I, I mean, the reason I've been able to have any success is because I say no to it. Even before these things happen, I could have had films come out a couple of years ago that I said no to, despite needing the money, because I didn't think I would have executed them to anyone's satisfaction. I just wasn't into it. And again, me, the 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 benefit of me having washed out in my 20s was that I realized that I can't do everything. I am not the most talented guy in the world. When I shine is when I have a story that I innately believe that no one in the world can tell it better than me. That's when I'm great. That's when I'm firing on all cylinders. That's when I do really, really good work. There are certain types of gigs. There are certain types of writers who are incredibly successful who can make anything good. 
You know, that's why people pay him a lot of money to punch up things and make anything good. I cannot make anything good. I can only make it good if I'm excited about it and I'm into it. So I have no bones. I've I've said no to opportunities that would have been considered career opportunities because I just don't think I'm the right person. And that's what I have. I have an honesty with myself about what I can and what I can't do. But you're not independently wealthy. You, you're, you're, you, you. That there's a real financial consequences for for turning. Of course, that work there down. are. But but I'm also doing fine. Like you know what I mean. I'm also not poor. I'm I'm doing quite well. But yes, I could be doing exponentially better <laughs> if yeah. I wanted. If I said a lot more yeses. I am curious about some of the contributions you were, and I don't know if these are things you touched on or not, but it's things I noticed in the movie. Uh, the score has these great 80s sort of Tron references, or at least in my mind, they're Tron references. And um, because there is an after, there's a lot of afterlife uh, here, it, there's like three or four different sort of like looks at what the afterlife looks like. Uh, one of them is like a very Picasso-influenced one. Well, like what, what, life, what, yeah. yeah, what what part do you, what, what, how much of that do you touch where it's, you know, it's not. Uh, well, you tell me. Do you do you touch what it looks like? Do you touch what the yeah. music's going to sound like? Yeah, yeah. That's all. That's set design. That's character design. Yeah, you you touch all of that. the The idea for the the Jerry's that actually came from one of our story artists, Afton Corbin. She was the one who came up with the idea for the using it as a straight line, and it's heavily influenced by like, you know, Picasso, um, Calder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's that's totally the case because it's supposed to be this concept of the universe dumbing itself down for our benefit. Um, the, the best analogy is like a scarecrow. Like to us, we put a scarecrow out into the, the cornfield and we assume that to the crows, that scarecrow looks like a human being and we know damn well it doesn't. So that's like the universe's scarecrow. You know, it, it's kind of dumbing it. So it's like, oh, the, these these humans think that we look like one of them and they just aren't aware that they actually look kind of, um, kind of crazy. So this so, is a- Dumb movie making question, but I'll ask it. Uh, writing an animated film versus writing a what is a live a live action film. Which which one sort of has given you more control over the finished product? Right, there's obviously directors. It's all collaborative, but in terms of like getting what's in your head onto the screen, which which one is sort of a, more of a direct line? That's hard to answer because in in the case of both these films, I wasn't just the writer. In the case of One Night in Miami, I was also executive producer. Mm -hmm. So that meant I was there for casting. I was there on like I had way more input than a typical screenwriter. And similarly for Soul, I was co-director. So I don't think either of them are typical to the, 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 the control or input that one has in a project like that. I can say that generally speaking, as a writer of live action, as a screenwriter, it is a very lonely pursuit. You usually, you know, you do your script, you do your revisions. If that's in your deal, you might do a polish. Then you hand it off and that's it. I mean, you may never go on set. And when the film comes out, you may not recognize 90% of what you've written because you don't you won't know until the credits get verified if they ended up hiring subsequent writers. So like I don't know if your average person understands the difference between the word and and an ampersand in writing credits on a movie. An ampersand means that they wrote it together. So if you see Kemp Powers ampersand Peter Kafka, we wrote this film together. If you see Kemp Powers and Peter Kafka, That means I wrote the first draft 
and you wrote the second draft and we may have never met each other. As mm-hmm. a matter of fact, we probably did not meet. And you may never even have seen the draft that I written. It might have been a page one rewrite, but because of my story concept contributions, I still got the credit. So screenwriting for live action, that's like a whole other bottomless can of worms. In animation, at least with features at a place like Pixar, it's it's a it's a group sport because in addition, you're writing, you're writing things out of sequence because the entire film is broken down into its roughly 40 component sequences. And because of production demands, the film doesn't go into production in sequential order. It goes into production based on what's ready to go into production. So it might be like one sequence from act two and one sequence from act one that need to go into layout and you're still writing the sequences around it. So you're writing it out of sequence and writing doesn't just come from the writer. So much of animation, because it's a visual medium, writing ideas and writing specifics also come from story. So storyboard artists are really, really pivotal to that process. Um, You know, very famously, one of Pete's most iconic moments from one of his films is um, called Merry Life. It's the sequence in the beginning of Up when mm-hmm. we see Carl Fredrickson live his whole life with his this wife. This is the one that d- d- makes everyone just, just, just break all. into tears. Yeah. And, and, and as, a, as a sequence, I think probably the person who had the most impact on that from a writing standpoint was Ronnie Del Carmen, the story artist who boarded Married Life. So again, writing for animated features, it's, um, it's just more of a collaborative effort. It's more of a group thing. You're not alone. It's quite the opposite. In fact, sometimes you'll wish you were, could be left alone, <laughs> but you're, you're constantly throwing stuff out and getting feedback, and it is very constant. So those are the, the general differences. But like I said, for me, it was a little unusual because I was also a co-director on Soul and executive producer on One Night in Miami. So being like a writer plus is, is a little bit different. Kemp, thank you for the education and thank you for the movies. <laughs> Everyone go see uh, Kemp's movies, Soul and, and One Night in Miami. You don't have to go anywhere. They're going to come to your house. You can stream them. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Kemp. Of course, man. My pleasure. Good to see you again. This Good was to fun catching up. Thank you. Thanks again to Kemp Powers. It was great to catch up. I hope we get to do it more than every 20-ish years or so. Thanks, as always, to Joel and Jelani, who edited and produced this show. Thanks to our sponsors who let us bring this show to you for free. And thanks to you guys for listening and telling other people they should listen to this podcast. Uh, Great to hear from you. Have a great holiday. Be back in a week with more fresh content. See you soon.